Hello, this is Ada with the Dissident Daughters podcast. I wanted to do a quick disclaimer before I play this next episode. As I went through and edited the episode, I realized that I did not have my microphone set up properly. And I've actually had some recording issues on the past two episodes. So my sound has just been really bad and I apologize for that. I'm learning, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not very tech savvy, but I am working on it and trying to find ways to make sure that this podcast has the highest quality that it can have. And I know that the last episode I did was not great. And this one coming up is really not great. And I apologize. It's just the sound quality is not what I would like it to be because I screwed up. So I've gone through and edited it as much as I can, but there's only so much I can do to make the sound better. Um, But I promise you it is a fantastic episode. I've got a great interview with Rhoda again, and we are talking about the sexual abuse case that the Associated Press came out with this past week um, regarding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so I will add another trigger warning now and just let you know that if this is a topic that is difficult for you to listen to, you definitely might want to skip this episode. But um, it's a really great interview with Rhoda and she's got some really great insights about uh, this, this topic. So I hope you enjoy it. And again, my apologies for the lack of quality recording. Um, I'm going to try and get better. So thanks for being patient with me and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. I am Ada, and I we have a special episode for you today. I've got a guest with me today. Rhoda is back. Woo woo! Hey guys, hey everyone. <laughs> I'm so excited to have her back. I wanted to first of all, right up front, give a trigger warning that we are going to be talking about sexual abuse, and. If that is something that is very triggering for you, you may want to skip this episode. This past week, the Associated Press put out an article about a sexual abuse story that happened in Arizona to a small child, and the church knew about it, and they did nothing to protect her. The reason why this, well, there's a lot of reasons why this gets me really fired up, but one of the thoughts I had this past week is that so many times we in the ex-Mormon community like focus on the historicity of the church, the truth claims of the church, whether Joseph Smith really saw a vision, whether the Book of Mormon was really written by ancient prophets and he translated it by the power of God, right? So many of the things that happened we're able to disprove or whatever. And and a lot of times that's the reason why our, our testimonies fall. But I, I had this thought that, okay, imagine for a moment that you could snap your fingers and all of the truth claims of the church were true and you could prove them. And the Book of Mormon was true. And the prophet Joseph Smith, he was a true prophet that God speaks to him, revealed the restoration of the church through him, yada, 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 right? 
all of those things are now true. And then this, this, but, but we are in, you know, modern day where the church is still fucking up like they are, like this is our reality. When I try to imagine that, I know that I still could not be in the church. Like none of the historicity matters anymore. I am so angry and frustrated. And I mean, I have gone through every stage of grief this past week, including incredible amounts of anger and rage for this child. And the fact that they are so negligent, they are so lacking in protecting the innocent, the underprivileged, their systems of leadership allow for corruption. They are not following Jesus in any way, shape, or form. The current church, okay? Let's just talk about the current church. If the past church is totally true, that's fine. The current church is not true. There's no way that it is led by God. Not one single ounce of me could possibly believe that based on their current actions. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like what I had said, I think at the end of my interview with you, if it all was true, when I was able to walk away, I was able to walk away with my head held up high because even if it was all true, I realized that God was going to have a lot more to answer for. And yes, I remember you saying that. Yeah. And when you have these things that come up, it is one of those things where, again, there are people that have a lot more to answer for than anybody who leaves the church. Yep. That is, that is so, that is so spot on. These people who allowed this to happen. So, so for anybody who did not read the AP article, I'm going to go through the article and kind of pull out maybe the most important parts. And we're going to just kind of dissect it and talk about what things are just like maybe the most egregious or, or whatever, um, about this story. And, and that's why, again, I, I put a trigger warning because this may be really hard to listen to if you have, um, experience or if something like this triggers you. So the, the, the article starts out with the very first sentence. MJ was a tiny black-haired girl just five years old when her father admitted to his bishop that he was sexually abusing her. The bishop, who was also a family physician, followed church policy and called what church officials have dubbed the helpline, in air quotes, for guidance. Okay, first, first red flag here. The bishop was also a family physician. I think this for me, what has gone through my head so many times is no more, do more. Mm. This is someone who took an oath yeah. to do no harm. Yeah. And he should honestly be more educated than even a typical person. That's right. On what to do. And if he suspected abuse, if, to me, if he was in his physician's office and this was happening in the physician's office, he would have he would have reported that. 
Yeah. But because it was in a church setting, he defaulted to what the church said and not necessarily what his training, his professional training said. Right. And when I read that, that he was a physician, it it made it 10 times worse. Because I'm sorry, if he had been a plumber, like it's almost like he might be able to like claim stupidity or something. But he's a freaking physician. He knows damn well. He he is a mandatory reporter if he's a physician. Absolutely. There's no question. But for some reason, he or the church like justified him not reporting because of his clergy responsibility in this in this instance. But it says later in the article that he was actually the wife's actual doctor. Like not just a physician, but he was her physician. So it that kind of blows my mind right off the bat. I'm like this is so unacceptable. So it goes on to say, um, you know, he called the helpline, but the call offered little help. Uh, Lawyers for the church who staffed the helpline around the clock told Bishop John Herod not to call police or child welfare officials, instead to keep the abuse secret. They said, you absolutely can do nothing, Herod said in a recorded interview with law enforcement. Herod continued to counsel MJ's father for another year. And also brought in the wife in hopes that she would do something to protect the children, but she didn't. Herod later told a second bishop, who also kept the matter secret, after consulting with church officials who maintained that the bishops were excused from reporting the abuse to police under the state's so-called clergy penitent privilege. Adams, who is the dad, continued raping his daughter, MJ, for as many as seven more years into her adolescence, also abused her infant sister, who was born during that time, and he frequently recorded the abuse on video and posted the video on the internet. Adams was finally arrested by Homeland Security agents in 2017. I think think it's also important to say that with no help from church... He yeah. was arrested with no help from church. Right. It was after law enforcement officials in New Zealand discovered one of the videos. Uh-huh. It and took they... people from New Zealand to get this man arrested. Yep. Yep. No zero help from the church. That just happened by chance outside of, you know, what the church did. And it's incredible because... When you think about the amount of time that passed, seven years is a long time. And that just continued to happen. My my brain keeps going to how did that bishop sleep at night? How does he look at them in the pew every Sunday? Yeah. I I genuinely would like to talk to this guy, to like look in his face and say, tell me how you did this, because I genuinely don't get it. I don't understand it. I, it's, it's left me speechless in so many ways. Yep. I feel like, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a social worker, but I do work in education. I am an assistant director at a preschool down here in good old Texas. And I oftentimes will sit there and think about my own burden and our, my teacher's burdens of... If I knew something was going on, 
how would I not report that? I mean, I would not be able to look in that child's eyes, <sighs> the family's eyes, and just go on my merry way and not have an issue with it. And honestly, you can honestly tell that this was something that was concerning to him because he brought it up and continued to counsel him. Yeah. Um, I think it gets farther into the Arizona law and how they kind of skirted around it. Yeah. Um, so we can we can get a little bit more into that here in a minute. But yeah. Yeah. I as I as someone who deals with children every single day and I deal with their families every single day. I really really cannot fathom being in this person's position and not finding a way to report this. Yeah. Yeah. So we come down a little bit further in the article and there is a guy uh, who is an Arizona attorney representing the bishops and the church in a lawsuit filed. So the three, there were three Adams children total and all of them have now been put in uh, foster care, maybe being adopted anyways. And the, the parents, these foster parents or adoptive parents uh, have, have, filed a lawsuit against the bishops and the church here. And this Arizona attorney representing the bishops and the church told the AP last month that the bishops were not required to report the abuse. And here's a quote. He says, these bishops did nothing wrong. They didn't violate the law and therefore they can't be held liable. And then he referred to the suit as a money grab. Okay. Yeah. He also insisted that uh, Herod did not know, this is the bishop, Herod did not know that Adams was continuing to sexually assault his daughter after learning of the abuse in a single counseling session. Okay, this is bullshit. Like, first of all, they did do something wrong. <laughs> I I understand what, what really pisses me off is when they try to get real, uh, like, specific about the words they use in saying, like, they did not violate the law. Okay. I can accept that possibly they did not violate the law. But what about moral law? What about doing what's right? What about protecting a child? If you claim to be the Lord's church and to follow Jesus, like, did you ever ask, like, oh, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well... And I think getting into the law a little bit, you know, yeah, it says Arizona's child sex abuse reporting law and similar laws in more than 20 states that require clergy to report child sex abuse and neglect. Basically, anyone caring for a child who reasonably believes a child has been abused or neglected has a legal obligation to report the information. But it also says that clergy who receive information about Child neglect or sexual abuse during a spiritual confession may withhold that information from authorities if the clergy determine it is reasonable and necessary under church doctrine. Now, I went through the Internet and tried to get I was looking to see could I get any further explanation on what that means to be reasonable and necessary. Yeah, there's nothing that I could find that could even further expand on that. And that's kind of where the church is saying, Hey, they didn't do anything wrong because it was a spiritual confession. And so, but what I did also see with that is, and who knows if he was told this or not, but under the Arizona law with the clergy that only pertains to 
to spiritual confession. If he saw something outside of that, he could he would then be a mandatory reporter. He would then need to report that. So say that line again, the reasonable and something about doctrine. Say that again. If, yeah. Clergy who receive information about child neglect or sexual abuse during spiritual confessions may withhold that information from authorities if the clergy determine it is reasonable and necessary under church doctrine. Okay. Reasonable and necessary under church doctrine. So what part of church doctrine makes that reasonable and necessary to withhold that information. Like, I can't understand it. The justification that I have seen is that if people are afraid that they're going to get reported, that their spiritual, their spirituality will be affected because they may not come in to repent for it. Yes, yes. That is the justification that I have seen. Yes, and and that's, it. it said that in i can't remember was that in the maybe that was in this article or in the church's response but dude why i don't know i just yes i understand but what good is that confession doing so like what good is getting a confession if you don't protect the child so they're saying like oh well we don't want to report people because then other people won't confess well i guess their thought is that confession, you know, makes it all better and that then they can be forgiven, right? Then the atonement comes into play. But that's just such bullshit. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not on board with that whatsoever. And I think too, even if you can, even if in his mind he could justify, okay, this was a spiritual confession and maybe he knows this part of the law. Maybe he was, you know, the other thing is too, I think as more information has come out, you know, those calls, um, the records are not kept. So when a yes. bishop calls, the records are not kept. So we can't actually go back and say, was he actually advised saying, okay, well, this is a spiritual confession. You do not have to do it. Now he wasn't, now as far as I can tell from what the law says, it's not that he couldn't, right. it's that he didn't have to. Right. Um, and, and the quote that he says in here is that the church told him he could not report it. Not that he didn't have to, right? but that he could not, which is, a lie, an absolute lie. Oh yeah, and the cam and the caveat for me too, and this is where I'm like, okay, even if you can justify it under this, even if you can sleep at night and say, I'm doing what the church, the the church that I believe is telling me to do. There is the second part of that exemption that says that is only for spiritual confessions, and you knew about this for seven years. Uh-huh. You cannot tell me that you never saw something that did not raise your eyebrows or suspicions that something was going on that you could have used that loophole right. to go ahead and report it. But yeah, everything you read from the church, when you look at the church's handbooks, if you are a bishop, it tells you to report to the line. There is, no, there is, and that they will help you with the state requirements, but it does not say go to the state's hotlines. You go no. to the church's hotlines. Right. Right. Um, there was a couple of things like what you're saying about, you know, seeing other signs there, there was a couple quotes in there that Herod told Homeland security that, um, the mother was pretty emotionally dead and that he knew, he knew from the beginning that she was unlikely to stop her husband, even though like he, and he had called her into counseling sessions with her husband. She was just 
like emotionally dead is, is the words that he used. He also recognized the harm that was being done to her, to the little girl. And his quote was, I doubt she will ever do well. So <sighs> explain this to me. <laughs> there is no explanation at that yeah. point. This is where being indoctrined in a church that where you give up all of your logical reasoning and power and you give it over to the church this is where this bites you in the ass Uh because I think a reasonable person outside of this would knowing the information they had either from a physician standpoint or even just someone in the congregation just I don't I can't imagine that you and he's a physician he Uh should know unless he's a shitty physician he yeah. should know the signs of abuse. There was a signs of neglect and abuse going on. If you could not take that yep. and go and report it with that to get the ball rolling, yep. there is no explanation for that. Yeah. But he would have, I think, even if he would have called again, now maybe they would have told him something different saying that this was no longer a spiritual confession, but again, right. his first call would have most likely been to the church's hotline. Right. Right. And they never tell them, well, there was a couple different things. Like they, they don't get enough information to be legally liable for anything. Like they only get first names. They never, um, well, first of all, they, they destroy the record every day, right? They they destroy their call logs so that somebody can't come back on them and say, Hey, you knew about this and you didn't do anything. Um, the other thing that comes to my mind is that, When he was released and the other bishop came in, he told the new bishop about the abuse, okay? And it 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 sounded like that the new bishop also called the hotline, but I I'm not one hundred percent sure on that. But suffice it to say, the new bishop also kept this information a secret. So we could argue that this new bishop did not receive a spiritual confession at all. He heard about it from the other bishop. So, and oh, and the only thing that um, this second bishop did, he said that the church officials told him that he should have a disciplinary hearing. With, a confidential one. Yes, yes, a confidential one. So this other, this bishop excommunicated the guy. But how does that protect the child? It doesn't. Nothing. Had a second daughter during this time frame. Yes. Yes. So he started sexually <sighs> assaulting when she was six weeks old. Oh my God. How does that not make you just sick to your stomach to look at a <sighs> tiny, tiny little baby who has no idea what's going on, but all she can realize is probably pain and fear. Yep. And she has, she has no voice. I think that's part of what gets me in this whole article is these children had no voice. Yep. Most children will not report abuse on their own. Right. They are afraid. Mm-hmm. They have been manipulated. They're also oftentimes don't even know what a healthy home looks like. Right. They are going to very rarely be the ones that report it. It is the adults that have to be the voice for these children. And two 
bishops, uh-huh. in my mind, failed these little kids. Yeah. And with this, that first bishop who was a family physician, is he going to have any disciplinary action as a physician now that this has come out that he did not do anything? I don't know. I'm, I mean, this is where the laws get super murky, I mm-hmm. think. You know, I'm not an attorney, so you yeah. can only read what you can read. But to me, I think they're going to, if even if something was, they would fall back on that. Well, he was a bishop and they were doing a spiritual confession. Yeah. Um, and, and sadly, Arizona had a bill introduced back in January of 2021 to mm-hmm. try to close this loophole. Mm-hmm. And to me, if the church really wanted to, because um, actions speak louder than words, you can, right. you can sit here and say all you want about <laughs> you do not, you know, you do, abuse is a terrible thing. Right. But, and we're going to get into yeah. their response to oh, the yeah. AP article, which is, yeah. Anyways, keep going. But somehow you have all this money, time, and resources to try and go after the LGBTQ plus community <laughs> and try to take away their rights. <laughs> Where is the church in the situation? Why would that be so hard to back and say, we do not want this loophole because we want our bishops to be able to report these things. To me, what it tells me is they are more concerned about the abuser being able to repent than actually protecting the victims. Absolutely. And exactly what you said, uh, actions speak louder than words. Because if you if you go to you know the church handbook, it, it will basically say that abuse is not tolerated in any form in the church, right? And they will tout that shit all day long. But the fact is that they tolerated that abuse for years. And this is only one story of thousands and thousands and thousands, right? So, yes, you're absolutely right. The, their words mean absolutely nothing when their actions show that they did nothing to protect this child. I think one of the tricky things that, you know, the the lawyers are dealing with now in this case is who really is responsible for the bishop not disclosing it? Is it the bishop or is it the people who gave him that advice? At the end of the day, you know, when the church lawyers give him, say to him, oh, you can't report or you'll be in trouble for doing that then does that take away the bishop's responsibility for not reporting? I think when, personally, when something like this where it's not it's not privileged, it's just he didn't have to. Yeah. That, to me, I, I, think it's, I think they're all responsible for it. I think all yeah. of them have a role to play in that. And I think... Um, this bishop does. I think the I think the attorneys on the other line do. For me, with my experience as someone who's had to have training on reporting abuse, and every law, every state is different. Everybody has different requirements. Every everything is different. But when I look at this and say the route he should have taken, and he probably would have taken had this happened outside of the bishop's office right he would have called the arizona uh, child abuse hotline yeah um he still could have done that he Mm -hmm. still could have called and he still could have said i am i am a bishop i had a spiritual confession Mm -hmm. 
can you give me clarification on this law? Can I still report this? Because that's what the experts in those states are there for. That's what those social workers are there for. My training basically will tell me, even if you are unsure, to call and to talk with them because they can walk it through. They can walk through the situation. They can walk through the requirements. They are the experts of their state. And they are an actual helpline that is actually there to help clarify the laws and give non-biased advice about what to do instead of it being a helpline that only helps the church to keep its secrets and to cover up abuse and, and to keep them from looking bad or, you know, having the abuse uh, reported as, you know, a church incident. The helpline is really only there to help protect the church. And I honestly wonder, how is this protecting the church? Like how, because it's 10 times worse now. It's 10 times worse now. Yes. It's 10 times worse now. This, like, we're not going to, we're not going to say anything because we don't have to. Now, what would the flip side of it be? What would the harm to be and say, you know, because somehow if a church member abuses a child, somehow that makes the church look bad. No, that yeah. doesn't make the church look bad. Yeah. Because if you look at it, the statistics are, um, cause I was kind of looking through just different kind of like what the, um, I'll see if I can find it. I have too many things open. No, that's okay. <laughs> what rain says basically, which, um, you know, it's about, it's a little, it varies just a little bit. It's about one in five or one in six will experience abuse in their lifetime. Okay. So if you're looking at a congregation of 300 people, you can count, you know, five people or whatever. And statistically, you're going to have every five people, there's going to be abuse there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this doesn't make, that doesn't make the church look bad. Right. What makes the church look bad is when you have the opportunity or you have the ability or the possibility of reporting. And what's the harm of calling the actual state department and saying, this is the situation? Because now if the state says, I mean, if the state were to say, no, that was confidential, then he goes on his, he goes on his way and he can't report it. And then you can say, we actually did X, Y, and Z. Yeah. This is what Arizona, the law, the state actually told us. Yeah. They didn't do that. So now you're in, you look worse than if you would have just actually legwork it up front. Yeah, they're shooting themselves in the foot. And I don't I don't fully understand either why it's so important for them to protect their name. Like if they were out there actually advocating for protecting children and for making sure that they were um, that innocent children were, were safe and were not, you know, having being abused, they would look like the heroes here. They would look like they were doing everything right. So I don't, it doesn't fully compute in me, like their thought process other than the only thing that, that I can think of is they must have a lot of fucking things to hide because I just don't, cause like maybe they just think like if we were completely, you know, open book and not hiding anything, you know, that maybe they would go, you know, down in a, blazing fire. I don't know. I don't know. Well, and also, you know, and I'm sure this is the same with Arizona here in Texas, if I was to call and make a report, even if the case isn't open, they still keep that on file. So that if there is something else later, yes, have that information. So 
part of the issue I see too is who knows what was said in these phone calls, but when the second bishop called, you know, they have, I'm assuming, no record of the first phone call that the first bishop made. Right. Um, and so, again, I think when, if you are trying to do best practices, mm-hmm. you put things in place that will actually help. If you want to protect the church, which a lot of people feel that's what it is, then actually put good practices in so that if something falls through the crack and something does happen like this, you can actually say, hey, this is what we did. This is These were the steps we followed. Right. We tried to do everything compliant. Right. And and then you go from there. But if you're only doing, you know, the minimum, the bare minimum, right. yeah, you have a lot of things to be worried about. Yeah. When they're saying, when their only defense is that we didn't break any laws, <laughs> like that's a problem. Yeah. One of the things where they have, one of the things that the AP article talked about was their protocol. Um, what was it called? Like their, I can't remember what, oh, the protocol for abuse helpline calls, right? And they have this very specific protocol of like questions to ask and, um, you know, that they, they, they are not to provide any identifying information, yada, yada. And it does instruct them to, it instructs the people taking the calls to encourage the perpetrator, the victim, or others who know of the abuse to report it. But it also says in capital letters that the people taking the calls should never advise a priesthood leader to report abuse. That counsel of this nature, nature should come only from legal counsel. So when that is, you know, in bold capital letters at the top, you know, never advise a priesthood leader to report abuse. I just do not understand that. They're saying this should only come from legal counsel. And that's the the direct opposite of what he has probably been trained to do as a physician. As a physician. Yes, exactly. And it's directly opposite of what I've been trained to do as someone who's in education is... Uh I do not go, I do not go to my boss and tell her about it because actually if I did, it would now make her someone who was required to report it as well, at least in my state. Yeah. Um, what I am told is if I have any suspicion of abuse that I need to either report it on the website or call in, not to go seek legal counsel, uh-huh. not to go talk to my own clergy. Um, and my, my preschool, like a lot of the preschools down here in the South, most of them are associated with the church. Um, with a like church, right? Not the a church. church. A church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Various churches, Baptist churches, you know, whatever churches, Catholic churches. They're, yeah, they're associated with a lot with a church normally. And when my preschool is no different, I do not, I do not go to that pastor and tell him about it and get his counsel on it. No. I am told I go directly to the state and to the state's and to the state's website or the state hotline. And the physician was has his own set of rules as a physician. The church should not be any different. Right. It's it's incredible the way they I don't know, the way they get around this and justify it. A couple of the other like things that I that I noticed was that if 
you know, a call comes into the helpline of the church and they decide that it's serious enough to send to the lawyer, they, they don't want to get any identifying information because they don't want to have to talk about it. They want that information to be covered by attorney-client privilege right. so that the, it can remain out of reach of prosecutors and victims' attorneys. So... Uh, so they do that on purpose. And, and the other, the other, the second point I wanted to make about that is that when they established this helpline, it was not established to be operated within its Department of Family Services, which would make logical sense. But instead, it's under the Office of Risk Management. So what does that tell you about the way they view this helpline? This is not about family services and helping people. It's about risk management, including like risk management is talking about liability and, uh, you know, problems with, um, you know, protecting, uh, let's see, what is it? Whose role is to protect the church and members from injury, liability, uh, an array of circumstances, including fires, you know, blah, 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 all those kinds of things. But the helpline about child sex abuse is also listed under this office of risk management. It doesn't make sense. sense. And they ultimately report to the first presidency. So, so that's the other thing is the first presidency and highest leaders of the church, they cannot claim that they don't know what's happening here. This all comes right directly to them. And the head of the church, you know, at the end of the day are actually not trained clergy members. (laughs) They may have decades of experience, but I think you know, you and I have talked about some various talks that we've looked through with all of this. When you have someone that had zero professional experience, zero professional schooling, talking about sexual abuse and talking to the victims of, you know, how they should, how they should go on with their lives or whatever way, this is not coming from people who are actually trained in these things. And, but they get away with it because they're, they're led by God. So they're actually yeah. talking from God. And this is what God says. Yep. It is just, oh, it just doesn't, it's, it's so frustrating and maddening. And, uh, this is the reason like that from a young age, I, I genuinely was like, I want to work. I want to be a lawyer. I want to, I want to fix the system that, you know, allows, you know, these problems to happen, these, the, the, these innocent people to be hurt every day. And, um, but when I see that, you know, the church lawyers, <laughs> they're lawyers for a different reason to only protect the system and the, 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 the most privileged in this scenario, it just makes me sick. Like, how do they get into this line of work only to protect the big guys. I I just don't, it's so, it's so sad and heartbreaking. Yeah. And I always think, I mean, I think that lots of different types of attorneys and I mean, whatever they do, whatever their passion is, you know, that's fine. But at the end of the day, you you do have to answer for that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe in, the Mormon church and you believe in everything it teaches, then you really have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to be okay with sending these types of calls on its way. 
Yeah. Um, and honestly, I mean, I, there is a lot of outrage, I think, within the Mormon community about it, but I don't know if it's actually going to change anything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so either. I mean, after the, the AP reported this, I mean, tons of tons of other newspapers, Washington Post picked it up, you know, uh, lots of other news channels. I mean, it's been reported all over the place this last week. And the church released a statement, of course, um, in response. And I will read a little bit of this um, response by them because I just, I mean, I just don't think there's any excuse for any of it. But somehow the church, you know, finds a way to make themselves sound like they did everything right. So they say um, the abuse of a child in any or any other individual is inexcusable. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes this, teaches it, and dedicates tremendous resources and efforts to prevent, report, and address abuse. Our hearts break for these children and all victims of abuse. Okay, my first question is, (laughs) tell me what tremendous resources you are dedicating to the efforts to prevent, report, and address abuse. Like, I genuinely want to know. What are, what are these tremendous you. resources that they're talking about, right? Yeah, they don't really tell you. Nope, nope, they don't. So then they go on. The nature and the purpose of the church's helpline was seriously mischaracterized in a recent Associated Press article. The helpline is instrumental in ensuring that all legal requirements for reporting are met. So that's key here. Because they're trying to make it sound like, you know, that it's that it is so important to do the right thing. But what they're saying only is that that all legal requirements for reporting are met. They're not saying that they do everything they can to help a child in a dire situation. Right. And I think it's funny that they say it. they seriously mischaracterized the helpline, how? Explain to us how they mischaracterized it because they didn't offer any examples of the mischaracterization, right? No, they didn't. No. They said that the helpline serves, uh, sorry, it's it provides a place for local leaders who serve voluntarily to receive direction from experts to determine who should make a report and whether they, the local leaders, should play a role in that reporting. Hmm. That sounds interesting. So they are determining whether they should make a report or who should make a report and whether, you know, they should have a part in that. Um, When a leader calls the helpline, the conversation is about how to stop the abuse, care for the victim, and ensure compliance with reporting obligations. It just doesn't... I think if you are truly trying to be... A person who is <clears throat> putting the children first, the only time that they should say that it's they can't, the only time that they are, should be advised not to report it is if legally it says you cannot report. Right. If you cannot report legally because it's the, you know, the clergy privilege, that is one thing. It's not right. Right. But if they legally cannot, then that is one thing. Right. Then we'd be talking about a completely different issue here, right? Right. Right. That's, this isn't the issue was is that Arizona says they don't have to. Mm-hmm. So this is a case for me when I look at this and say, this is where they did not put the victim first. Right. Because 
he could have. He did was not, he wasn't, it was not something where it said that he was forbidden to do it because of Mm -hmm. clergy privilege. Yeah. So isn't that interesting? I, I just thought of, um, the, the line where they talked about, well, if we, you know, if we report these situations, then people would not be willing to come in and confess, and then therefore their souls could not be saved. So what does that tell you about who they care about the most? They care about the perpetrator. They care about wanting to save the perpetrator because then they can go confess and repent. They don't care about the child. They don't care about the victim. What? So if we're, if we're really putting victims first, then you put victims first. Yeah. Then we don't, we don't care about, I mean, not that they shouldn't care about the perpetrator, but sorry, there, there is really no solving that problem. Like a perpetrator is going to continue to perpetrate this problem. They're going to continue to abuse. An abuser just continues to abuse. Him confessing to a bishop does zero Zero. Like, because actually, what he has figured out is if I confess to my bishop, I get to repent of my sins, uh-huh. but I don't get in trouble for it. I don't get in trouble for it. I can continue to do this, which is exactly what he did for seven years. Yep. So, another part I wanted to point out because I, I have experience with this. So, Uh, In the church's response, it continues on and says the helpline is just one of many safeguards put in place by the church, which I think is funny. Any member serving in a role with children or youth is required to complete a training every few years about how to watch for, report, and address abuse. Okay, I want to address this because I worked with youth for many, 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 many years. Okay, only... Starting in maybe I want I'm I'm kind of guessing, but I want to say it was probably around 2015 or 2016 was the very first time that I received any training about how to watch for report and address abuse. Now I did receive training. I remember it. There was a basically a Sunday school course that happened in my ward, and and I don't know how other wards or stakes were doing it. But for the very first time, I went through a a course that was held during Sunday school hour, and they talked about how to watch for, report, and address abuse. Now, when they say report, they're talking about reporting to the helpline. So the only instructions that we got in that training was that we were supposed to call the helpline. There was never, there was never talk of calling the police. Never. They said, call the helpline and they would give us instructions. So there, there were things put in place like, you know, you could not teach a class being the one and only adult in the class. Like there always had to be two adults there. Um, and if like I had a teaching partner, this is when I was teaching Sunday school, but you know, I had a teaching partner and if she didn't show up one Sunday, then I had to try and get a parent of one of the children in my class. Or I had to just, you know, ask one of the Sunday school presidency to come in and sit in the class with me. So that was, that was one strategy they had is to always have two adults, which I 100% agree with. I, and, and I thought the church was doing a great thing by doing this, right? I thought at the time, 
that this training they were doing was amazing because they were talking about it. I mean, just the fact that they were talking about it, you know, made me really happy. Like, oh, they care. They, they absolutely care about this issue. So, so they did do that. But the problem is that they, they really do, you know, beat it into your head that you are supposed to call the helpline and then the helpline will tell you what to do from there. So there's still an in-between and I never had to do it. So I never called the helpline. So I don't have experience with that. But I know from, you know, being a, a Sunday school teacher that that's what they taught us. Now, for 15 years before that, almost my entire time in the church as an adult, I was serving with the youth. I was either in the primary presidency or the young women's presidency or teaching Sunday school. So, and it was only in the last couple of years that I was in the church that I ever received any sort of training. Did you have any sort of experience with that at all? I did it. And I think, and I don't know if it's changed, but I think right now that helpline is only for bishops and stake presidents. Oh, interesting. I think if you, as a congregation member, actually call they will tell you that it's only for bishops and stake presidents. So, and that could be, that could totally be accurate. And it's totally possible that they told us to tell the bishop and then he would call the helpline. I don't have a perfect memory about it. Like I said, I have a terrible memory, but, and that was, you know, five or six or seven years ago. And so that's totally possible that maybe they said, you know, we were supposed to tell the bishop and then the bishop would call. But I do remember conversation about the helpline for sure. Yeah. Well, Interesting. And I, think, and I think too, if, you know, when you're, when you're trying, when you, when you pass this off to the bishop, let's say yeah. you're suspecting something and you're passing something off to the bishop. Um, this is where the problems kind of arise because now you think that something's being done. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And that's not a guarantee. Right. It's, it's absolutely not a guarantee. Um, the bishop is then, you know, any, it does say bishops or state presidents are supposed to call the hotline, but for any, mm-hmm. any time they think there is abuse going on. Yeah. But it will tell you in all of the training for those bishops and state presidents, you call that hotline, you call that hotline. Yep. Nowhere does it say that first, maybe you should call to me, what you should be doing is calling the state's hotline and then calling the church hotline if mm. you so feel like you need to. But when you keep everything internal and you don't allow any external parties to help in these situations, this is where the problems happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's too many people in this line You know, it's like there's the victim and then, you know, somebody in the ward notices it and then they tell the bishop and then the bishop's supposed to call the hotline and then the hotline decides from there. Like this whole line of people, whereas like if you were just, you know, if you found out about something and you just called the state immediately, you know, there's not all those other extra steps in between there. So it's clearly a system that's not working. Right. Let's say the kid tell, you know, it's the more people it passes through. Right more distorted the story can become where you may yes. have not gotten all of the correct information. Right. And the more chances of the ball being dropped completely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The other part, so the the last part of the church's uh, response says, the story presented in the AP article is oversimplified and incomplete and is a, series, a serious misrepresentation 
of the church and its efforts. We will continue to teach and follow Jesus Christ's admonition to care for one another, especially in our efforts related to abuse. So I I want to understand what was over, oversimplified and what was a misrepresentation. They didn't specify. Well, no, I think this article and I think the church's response is hoping that members will actually go and read. Yeah. The original article because they put this out and I think what it's hoping it's it's already tainting the waters right totally. so it's already tainting the waters for their true believing Mormons yeah that the article's wrong you know it's oversimplified it's but we're not going to give any examples yeah they don't have to give any examples because all they have to do is is plant a seed of doubt yes that what the AP said was true right all they have to do is use certain words like misrepresentation, mischaracterization, oversimplification, you know, these words. And then and then the TBMs go, oh, OK. And they won't even read the AP article. Right. Well, and this goes this stems down to members have been taught since birth that it's an us versus them mentality uh-huh. that really you're taught to not trust sources outside the church. Now, they're talking about that when it comes to you know, church history, church problems and stuff like that. But how, if you've grown up your entire life being like, you do not trust things outside of the church. And so when the church comes out yeah. and says these things that, you know, it's oversimplified, it's not correct, it's not accurate. Who are a lot of these members going to believe? The church? Yeah. Or an article that is from outside the church? Totally. Totally. They are 100% going to believe the church because they have been trained to do so. And I mean, I, I try to, I always try to think when, when issues come up, I try to think, how would I have responded as a TBM? Would I, you know, and, and try to honestly look at that. And, and I genuinely think that I would have seen, you know, a headline and I would have, I would have been incredibly sad for, you know, the, the child who was abused. Uh, and I would have seen that in the first, you know, couple paragraphs. I probably would, I might have started reading the article, but I would have, immediately brushed it off as that was just one really bad person in the church. Right. And I would not have, I would not have allowed myself to believe that the church could have been at fault in this issue. Like there's just, I don't know why, but our brains just, we've been so indoctrinated to believe that it's always somebody else's fault that we, it's like impossible for us to put the responsibility on the church as a TBM. And you're conditioned to believe that, I'm trying to remember how, I'm trying to think how to say this. You're conditioned basically to basically believe that everybody in the church is good, right? Yeah. So let me throw a scenario out to you when you are a TBM. Okay. Um, because this is where I think there's, there's problems. When you are a TBM, and I know your kids were older before you guys left than mine was. Mm-hmm. If a new member moves into the ward and a new person, not a member, moves into your neighborhood... Who would you trust first? Who would you trust quicker? The person in the ward or your the random neighbor down the street? Yeah. The the person in the ward, 100%. Like all things being the same, right? So we're we're taught in the church, you look at people who have temple recommends <laughs> or they hold these callings or whatever and we're we're taught to really trust church members, leaders. Yeah. Um very, very quickly. And we give a lot more space for those people than we would. Oh my gosh. Anybody, yes. anybody outside of the church. 
Yeah, that's totally true. Yep. And so I think for people who are still in the church and they read the church's response, they are going to give that one a lot more credibility uh-huh. than the article who actually had the court documentations. Right. And they will believe the church over that because that's what they're conditioned to do. Right. And you know what else is another piece of that is we've been so conditioned about the persecution complex that we think that everyone outside the church is just trying to attack the church and make us look bad. And so they're lying or they're exaggerating or they're not really telling the whole story, right? Because poor Mormons, we're always just the victim in this situation. They're just trying to make us look bad, right? So we always disregard what they say because that's another, that's a whole nother thing that adds to it is that whole persecution complex, right? Totally. And I even read, like, from I was uh, looking at an Exmo thread, and someone had posted a, a text message chain with, like, a, a TBM family member. Uh-huh. And the family member was basically saying, you know, again, they were using the church response saying, we don't know the whole story. You know, 2020, you know, looking back, it's always 2020 uh-huh. vision kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the article is probably not giving everything. And to me, I'm like, well, when I look at it, I don't feel like that holds a lot of water because yeah. this first bishop was concerned enough that he actually brought it up to the second bishop, uh-huh. and that person was excommunicated. There was enough information out there to excommunicate him, which the church does not like doing. I mean, let's be honest. They don't want to excommunicate people because they lose their blessings, supposedly. They lose their yeah. exaltation when they excommunicate. They are not going to excommunicate unless they have just cause for it. Right. So there was enough there. And do you think that in the church's mind, even just a little bit, that they felt like, hey, if we excommunicate him, then we can, like, wash our hands of this situation and say, hey, we did our part. We we disciplined him, you know, and that's all. I don't know. I don't know if that was part of their strategy. But I think what it ends up doing is further isolating the family. Yeah. You know. I think that family, and I don't know, I read a little bit what it said about, you know, they they were already isolated. Yeah, they lived out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And now you've excommunicated. Who knows if that mom still brought those girls to church or not after he's excommunicated. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't but know. that does further isolate those girls of someone being able to notice yeah. and be able to maybe someone else calling for help. Right. Totally. They were totally isolated. There was nobody around them that would have, I mean, it it sounded like, it's not like they had next door neighbors, you know, that that would have heard things happening or seen things happening or could have reported it. It sounded like they were out in the sticks, you know, and that that was by design because there was, there was terrible abuse happening there. Well, isolation is a red flag. Totally. You know, and that's. And I don't know. I don't know if that's what they thought. Maybe we can make this all go away, you know. Yeah. In the end, I think if the church really, really wants to make this right, and actually they need to change, there's a lot they need to change. You know, I feel like right now they're doing the bare minimum. Yeah. Like you said, oh, having two people in a class, well, great, but... How often can you say that someone is sexually abused during a Sunday school class? Yeah. That's not really the issue, you know. Um, The church, I think, breeds a lot of ways for people to groom. Uh 
and a lot of it's because we're very we're very compliant. We're very compliant to leaders. We look to leaders. Totally. Very trusting. We're trusting of the others in the congregation. You know, I think we give a lot more a lot more grace for people that are Mormon versus non Mormon. I do think that this was if this was a different church and this was blowing up, you know, like how it blew up with the Catholics, you would not see church members defending it. Totally. That is so that is so true. The irony is just ridiculous because this this guy who wrote the AP article, he's the same guy who opened the, you know, floodgates on the Catholic Church and their whole sex scandal. And when that happened, was the church defending them and saying, oh, I'm sure the the news article is just exaggerating and and they're just persecuting the Catholic Church. No, guaranteed they did not. What they thought was, oh, my gosh, the Catholic Church is so horrible. It just breeds, you know, abuse and and problems. Right. I mean, So yeah. it's it's just such a hypocritical, yeah, way of seeing. And when you, I think when you look through, you know, some of these different talks that people have given throughout the years, that is very hard for victims to come forward uh-huh. in the first place. And then if you take some of these talks and also put that on top of it, uh-huh. it's it's almost nearly impossible. For yeah a lot of these people to come forward. There's so much shame. And, and honestly, I think sometimes the bishops, because they're not trained ecclesiastic leaders, I don't think they can always, they don't always necessarily know what they're hearing. Right. It could actually be a form of abuse versus, you know, they may look at a sexual sin where actually it could be abuse. Right. Totally. And this is where like the Bishop roulette thing comes in. Right. I, I can't believe how many stories I've heard in the last week since the AP article came out Everyone in the ex-Mormon community is sharing all of their, you know, sex abuse experiences and such. And there was one story where uh, somebody said that, like, some 60-year-old woman was sexually assaulted. And her when she went and told her bishop, he took away her temple recommend. Right. What the fuck? Like, yeah. so, so in that way, he blamed her. He said she was, what he was saying is, you're no longer worthy to go to the temple because you were sexually assaulted. What? I have to say, no church, you know, no church is perfect. Yes. Because I've had, I've had the ability to watch a different church function. I don't work for this church, but our preschool is an umbrella of their ministry. Uh There's a lot of differences. You know, their pastor and associate pastor actually have religious backgrounds, uh, religious education, they actually do have classes in those religious degrees that make them more qualified, still not an expert, but more qualified, Uh I think, to handle people come in. But a big difference is, is that sex is not demonized. (laughs) Ah, yes. He, the pastor, so the pastor's male, the associate pastor is female. They do not do these bishop interviews where we're bringing in, you know, now that the church has changed. So when you're the year you turn 12, you get to go and start doing the things in young women and young men. Right. Uh So even if someone turned their birthday is December 30th, you could have a child in there doing these bishop interviews now that just barely turned 11 talking about they were 10 a week ago. Yeah. Now they're in the young women's or young men's program having conversations with bishops they should not be having right um, 
and those do not happen in other religions necessarily. They, you do not have bishops doing these types of interviews and stigmatizing sex. And now it's made it even harder because now a, a child does not necessarily understand the difference between what consent and not consent is. Right. 100%. It's, it's awful. I mean, I've, I've, I've noticed a lot just being able to work with a different church group. You know, the whole dynamic of their pastor is different. If you're not out there looking to, like, pulling people in to find out what kind of sins they're doing. <laughs> yeah. You actually get to be a person who can actually be there for your congregation mm-hmm. in emotional ways that does not include church discipline or excommunication or taking away a temple recommend. Yeah. Why is that such a hallmark of Mormonism, of policing? It's policing, right? It's them, you know, like it's somebody being a judge over another person about their worthiness, about, I don't, I don't understand that. And that does not happen in a lot of religions that are not fundamentalist religions. Yeah, this is only in like high demand religions like the Mormon church. Yeah, so when you have a child who's experiencing sexual abuse, but they're hearing things about sex is bad, sex is only for marriage, sex is like next to murder, yep. and they're not necessarily getting the full picture of what that is, you have now made it even harder for that child to come forward. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And we were talking earlier before we started this episode about the Richard G. Scott talk and where it's, he taught, let's see, the healing, the tragic scars of abuse. It was a talk given in 1992. And he essentially says that at some point, you know, if you are a victim uh, of abuse, you may need to recognize a degree of responsibility for the abuse and that a priesthood leader will help you assess your responsibility and help you address and repent if needed. Okay, so I try to imagine you are a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old child who is living in a sexually abusive home where your father is abusing you and you are listening to this talk and this person says you need to look at your responsibility in this abuse. So, I mean, how confusing would that be that you would be like looking at yourself going, oh, what did I do to bring this upon myself? You know what? Oh, shoot. I'm responsible for this. I've been doing something wrong. Like I need to confess and I need to repent. What the fuck? Like, how? how Like the purity culture and the modesty culture. Yes. I should, maybe my, may, I, maybe I should have worn, like for a little seven-year-old, oh, maybe I should have worn, I didn't wear shorts under my skirt. Yes. It's all my underwear. Yep. Like, you know, there is, there is so much that, you know, we have to understand that a kid's brain is not fully developed. You're not fully developed until you're in your twenties. Yeah. And so what a child perceives as reality or as normal in an abusive household, that is where we have to be their advocates. We have right. to be their voices. We have to be the ones that will stand, step forward. You know, I think I love the one thing I've always remembered is like, uh, you know what assume means, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you assume something and you make an ass out of you and me, you're assuming, 
someone else is going to take care of it. You have to be the one that can step forward and do that. Yeah. And this bishop, who was a physician, who had all of the, I feel like, who could have taken so many other routes, decided to give up his, probably what he knew was right, Yeah. in the name of the church. I agree. And I think the, the sad part about this is, well, one of the sad things about this is this is just one story in a sea of stories of, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stories. This is not an isolated incident. That's, that's the horrifying thing about this is this might be, you know, one of the worst I've ever heard, but also it's not even close to the only one I've heard. I mean, there, I just hear these stories constantly. And when I was a, oh gosh, I have a personal experience of somebody very close to me who there was sexual abuse happening in the home by the father to a child. The father confessed to the bishop. The bishop told him to repent. There was no disciplinary action. Uh, When the mother found out and was uh, understandably upset and wanted to report it, it it went up the chain of like bishop to stake president to whatever, and them saying, you need to forgive and move on. You need to let the atonement work and you need to let this go. And so she was essentially guilted and bullied into not reporting it and to just like pretending like everything's fine. So she stayed in this marriage for multiple more years until she finally realized that's fucked up and I'm not doing this anymore and got herself and her kids out of it. It's just like, how, how do we deal with this in a, a healthier way where these people are not allowed to just continue their abuse to, for, you know, decades and decades? I, I, I don't know. But people in the church, and especially women, are guilted into believing that the church is taking care of it and, you know, the atonement will take care of it and that it's not our job to report it. And, oh, and it's always like, you know, you'll ruin this person's life if you report them. What? What about the victim's life that's ruined? Like he said, like the own bishop said in the article, he didn't know how that girl was ever going to have a good life. If nothing else from this episode, from this whole thing is, I don't, can't, I can't see a lot of, you know, I'm just, I don't, I doubt there's very many like TBMs listening. Yeah. But if you're an ex-Mormon, you absolutely can bring this up in a non-threatening way and say, hey, what, what, what is our family plan if there's abuse? Our family plan should not be to go to the bishop. Our family plan Yes. Should be we are going to report this to the state, yes. not to go through the bishop or not trained. Like you can, you can have those conversations. I think yeah. with extended family members of what's our family plan of this. What, what can we do to help ensure that one, there is no abuse. Two, um, if something happens, how can how can we make sure that this is rectified correctly? Yeah, I love that talking ahead of time about a plan of action of saying, here's what, here's what we are going to do if something like this arises in our family. I love that. Yeah. If you want to involve the bishop, involve the bishop, but your first step should be 
to go to the actual state reporting authority. Some states will even let you do it anonymously. Like Texas here, mm-hmm. you can report anonymously. There's limitations with it because just they can't follow up with you if it's reported anonymously. Anonymously, yeah. I don't know like what Utah and some of the other heavier Mormon Yeah, states. I'm not sure. Um, but Texas, we could. You know, and, and, and knowing and understanding that I think if you report in good faith, you are not liable. And that's where I don't understand with this with this whole thing with the church. If you report something in good faith, you, you are not liable. Even if it is a clergy privilege, right. then they wouldn't they wouldn't pursue it. No, they wouldn't. And they just they just lied. They flat out lied and they know they lied when they told the bishop that he could not report or he would be liable for lawsuits. That is bullshit and they need to do better. They just they just have to do better. I think every state has that exemption. If you report abuse in good faith, that you are not under any liability, like criminal liability, huh. back, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It's it's and it's all normally done. Um, even if they have to take your information, that information is not released to the family to anybody. So that is, in you know, things can still fall in through the cracks, but right. But they are protecting the reporter, yeah. right? Right. The more, yeah, they are. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, like, things can fall through the cracks. You can still try to do everything correctly, and things sometimes do still fall through the cracks. And, right. And, you know, and no system is perfect, but the more layers of protection you have, the better off and the less chances that someone is going to endure this kind of abuse for seven years. Yeah. It's incredibly heartbreaking. I just can't, I can't even stand the thought of this little child you know it just is heartbreaking and it's rage inducing and the church just they need to get their shit together and fix this problem and it's it's I I don't know how you know to get them to change I mean me now I mean I'm not officially resigned from the church I am still a member of the church um but I feel like my voice doesn't matter. Like, what? I don't even know. How, how do you go about trying to make change in the church? I don't know. It feels like an insurmountable task. I, I think that's where it's, it starts becoming, this is where social media and technology can be such a great thing. Like, I think people need to share that this is, it's not normal. It's yeah. not normal what, what these different things in the church have is is not normal or it's not enough yeah you know it's not enough you know, that's exactly we don't right. even have simple background checks done for anybody we just rely on the spirit of the lord <laughs> you know? discernment discernment and i've flat out have had like people in bishoprics tell me there's calls of inspiration and there's calls of desperation oh god yeah. right so yep. not everything is inspired <laughs> yep but i think you know i i think members need to continue to voice that it's not okay that they want to be they want the church to do better they want better training yeah. you know there's so much training available out there and if you're looking for training you can even just start with going to your state's website and what their abuse training is what to look for i mean those things should not just be saved for an occasional sunday like these things should be up and in the forefront and actually saying we are going to hold people accountable for it and this is 
you know, educate members of what abuse red flags are. Yeah. Educate people on, you know, what truly to do. You know, you don't blame the victim. You don't question the victim. Mm-hmm. You immediately take that information and take it to the proper authorities. But that's also making the church have to, like, say that they're not a proper authority. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know if you want to talk about this and if you don't, I can totally edit this part out, but I know that you reached out to me this week and asked about resigning from the church and that this issue kind of brought that to the forefront or. It's something that, you know, we have, my husband and I have circled around, Yeah. you know, I think it's, it's, and we will inevitably at some point. And I think, yeah. For me, this is very much because I may have never been one to want like ten kids. Yeah, <laughs> but kids are near and dear to my heart. Like absolutely, I work with kids every day. Like I work with these small little kids. I mean, she was five years old. I work with four and five and three year olds, and mm-hmm. um, this is something for me as a as a person is it's beyond infuriating for mm-hmm. me, um, and it's something that you know. I think it's something that I have definitely been kind of circling around. I think for my husband, he's talked about, there's a lot of people that are kind of waiting for Oaks to come into power. Yeah. <laughs> and then resigning, but he's, he's in a lot more like groups and Exmo things than I am. Mm. He says there's a lot of people that are talking about that. This is one of the things that's pushing him over the edge. And that's very much like, whether we do it right now or not, I don't know, but yeah. it is something that is very much like, Oh yeah. I do not want my name associated with this church because yeah. I do not want something associated that is not actually protecting its victims. It's protecting those that they're more concerned about, which ends up being, you know, the adults in the situation so that they can repent. Right. Right. And, and not only are they not protecting, but they're actively hurting by, you know, their policies in, in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I feel the same way. Like I do not want my name associated with it. And maybe in some small way, you know, sending in your resignation is a statement to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm pretty involved in all the ex-Mormon groups. And yeah, I can't believe how many people I've heard resigning. And, and one person, uh, I can't remember if it was on Reddit, I think it was, but they had said that they went to like a UPS store to get their, their resignation letter notarized. And that the person at the UPS store told them that that was the fourth one they had done that day. So just that one random UPS employee had signed, had notarized four resignation letters in that one single day. So I thought, holy shit, maybe there's a lot of people resigning right now over this issue. And and I think that happens every time some big problem comes out in the church, there is this big flood of resignations. And I think that does send a message to the church. Now, whether the church really cares about us or not, you know, like they probably don't, but I wish there was more that I could do. I feel very silenced. I don't know if silenced is the right word, but I feel very like I can't totally speak out and say what I want to say, uh, like on social media. Like I, I go to like the ex-Mormon groups to do that. But like on my social media platform, I feel muted. I feel like I can't say what I want to say because I have too many TBM friends and family who I'm alienating every time I say something. 
And I also have a professional life that I have to like, I have clients and, and I can't piss people off. And I don't know why I just feel so muted and, and it's frustrating because I want to be able to speak out and make a difference and change things. And I don't really know how to do that. And it's hard because when you see people trying to make positive changes yeah, and they get excommunicated for it. Yes. Yes. What message is the church sending when you have Sam Young, Sam Young. who wanted to have, you know, bishops stop asking sexually explicit yep. um, questions to youth? He was eventually excommunicated for that. Isn't it crazy? All he was asking for was a policy that protected kids from being alone with a bishop right. and from being asked sexually explicit questions. Because put that in any other situation, put that in a situation of, let's say your child was taken into a room alone with a teacher, yeah. a coach, a mentor, a co- like a, a boss, uh-huh. right? And if a boss or a teacher or someone asked these questions, you would be outraged. It would never You're, be okay. You would be, I mean, you'd be outraged. I mean, you would have this person fired. You would have everybody. Uh-huh. But... Because you're so desensitized to what is actually normal or not normal when it comes to religion. Yep. Um, it doesn't seem abnormal to have a man alone with a child, yeah. someone who is 12 or 13. Yep. And thank God for me that I never had a bishop that really ever, like, pride or asked. And not like I had anything to talk about. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I've heard so many stories of people having so many inappropriate questions asked. Yep. When they were teenagers. And if that was to happen in any other situation, it would not be okay. No. And there would be outrage. And for whatever reason, we justify it and say it's okay because what? Because he's a a leader of the church? Because he's called by God? Uh, I I don't know. It just doesn't doesn't compute, doesn't add up. But I think my, my... message to the church is just to do better. Like you have to make changes, policy changes, structural changes that, that don't set up only a protection for you, the church and your system and your leaders. Like there has to be a way to protect victims and kids and innocent people who are being abused and who are not getting the help and protection that they need um, from a church who claims to be led by God. This is just an absolute mindfuck to try and wrap your brain around how this could be happening in a church that claims to be led by God. Like, it just... Be the actual voice for the kids. Yes. Be the actual voice for them. If you want to have a hotline, have a hotline, but have that hotline's actual main goal is not to have risk assessment, yeah. but actually, what do we do for this child so that this child gets out of this situation? Yep. Do not put the, do not put this on anybody else. Do not try to victim blame. Do not try to say anything else. But actually, make your goal to find a, to make sure that that child is out of that situation. And nine times out of ten, it is reporting, having that person, the clergy person, report the abuse. Yep. Do not have, do not rely on the, on the mom. Do, what, what person is really, I mean, very few people who are re- abusing are going to report on themselves. Like yeah. do not, re- do not 
rely on anybody else. If you know this is happening, be that child's voice because that child does not have a voice. They don't have a voice to be able to take care of it themselves. Yeah, that's why they're in that situation. Yes. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And I hope that anyone who is listening who can, you know, do something, that you'll do something, that this will maybe like make people not sit back and just be complacent and accept that somebody else is going to fix the problem or, you know, whatever. But even in Utah, I think right now I saw something circulating about, you know, they've tried to close the clergy loophole in Utah. You can get involved with that. You can, you can absolutely, if you want to make a change, get involved with that. Look at your state. If your state has an exception, it's not hard. You can send an email, you can make a phone call. I mean, there are there are petitions out there yes. to get these these types of exceptions taken out of the law, and that yep. is something that would force the church yes to actually have to report these. Yes. So, contacting your legislators. Also, Sam Young has a petition on his website, which is just strictly for the church, like petition going to the church with signatures. So, if you care about that, you know, do that. If you can, if you can try to change the laws in your state, do that. Yeah, I am I am definitely for that. There there was legislation, I believe it was in March of 2020 that got that got voted down um about closing that clergy loophole. But this should this should there should not be a loophole. It just it ha- the policy has to change. And if the policy changes, then the church has to change, right? So yep. maybe that's our route because going directly to the church maybe isn't going to make a difference because they're always going to have justifications or excuses or whatever. But maybe Absolutely. if we can get laws changed, then then the church has to abide by the law. And, you know, that's the lowest common denominator. I mean, apparently they only care about, like, the minimum law that they have to, that they have to abide by. They don't actually care about the moral, the moral ramifications of it. So anyways... Absolutely. I appreciate so much you coming on today and chatting with me about this issue and hopefully speaking out makes a difference. Do what you need to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's all we have to say for, for today and we'll end this episode now. <laughs> See Bye, you later. <laughs>